Thank you for your welcome, and thank you for the privilege of uh, speaking into your life this morning. I make you this promise, since you've come out to hear me, I will not waste your time. <laughs> Is that okay? Is that a deal? I will uh, make sure that I leave you with something good, something profound, and something useful. You know, sometimes we've got to make sure that the rubber hits the road. So let's make sure the rubber hits the road. I will be talking to you on trust this morning. Uh, let me begin by saying something profound. Nah, nothing comes. <laughs> Actually, I will say something profound. If you master the land of trust, you'll stay out of the land of disillusionment. How's that for starters? You'll never end up in the land of disillusionment if you master the culture of the land of trust. Trust, I call it the queen of the life skills because trust will set you up to succeed or fail in life. And we know that trust in our Jesus Christ gives us righteousness, gives us peace, and gives us heaven forevermore. And we know that those who refuse to put their trust in Christ remain in judgment and despair because they have not trusted in God's solution to our pitiful state. So by all means, insist that your brothers, your sisters, your family, your friends, your children put their trust in Christ. But I'm talking this morning about the life skill of trust. Make sense? And this skill is the queen of the life skills. Yesterday we spoke on negotiation as the king of the life skills. If you don't have negotiation skills, you're going to end up a professional victim and pretending powerlessness right through your life, or you're going to end up a dominating bully, intrusive, boundary intrusive, and uh, dominating those around you. And so I've found that the uh, narcissistic personality disorder and the uh, crazy maker and the bully, they all have one thing in common, they have zero negotiation skills. Same with the victims, same with the people who let others dominate their lives. But this morning we're moving into another life skill, and um, I wanted, if you've got your Bible, please, to turn with me to Acts chapter 15. I bring you greetings from my wife, Rosemary, who's joined a bunch of ladies, and they call themselves the Stitches, and they stitch over a weekend, and they're down in Tekapo stitching up a storm, uh, and uh, no doubt she'll have something beautiful to show me in um, thread and fabric, and uh, I love to see what she does with those golden hands. Everyone has a gift. You have a gift that God has never given anybody else in exactly the same way. I wonder if you've found it yet. I wonder if you've found it yet. Because when you find it, you are to train it. And when you've found it and trained it, you will be useful, powerful, mighty in the hand of God. Yeah. He gave you. You check me out. You check out later on, not now, but later on. You check out three, Ephesians 3.10 and see if it's not true. That there is something in your life and heart that can manifest an infinite God. An infinite God needs an infinite variety of people to show himself through. You have got something by which he can show himself and manifest himself to the cosmos. And he will do it through you. But first you must find it and then you must upskill it and train it. And that's all I've done. I had a desire to undo the lies that were binding people up, complex lies, lies from the pit, 
mistaken beliefs. And I've spent my life showing people where they're loyal to a lie. And the moment they trace it, and the moment they face it, and the moment they replace it with the truth, they are free instantly from that lie. And all of the fruit that that lie was, evil fruit that that lie was going to produce in their lives, broken relationships, broken marriages, broken careers, broken trust, stops at that moment. The moment you kill the spider, no more web. And so as a counsellor, I, I am a spider detector. I sit with people and I find the lie in your mind that's allowing the father of lies to come and go, to rob your family, to rob yourself of health, of wealth, of, uh, of uh, worship and service. Some people cannot worship because they will not let the lie go that prevents them from lifting their hands and lifting their heads and lifting their hearts in praise. And they cannot worship. A lie is what's binding them. Humiliation, fear, anger, resentment. So I would free God's people from anger and fear and resentment. I would free them from depression and from confusion and from violence. And that's what I've spent my life doing. Seemed to me like a good idea at the time. Never regretted it. Let's go to Acts chapter um, 15 and verse 36. Here we're talking now about two of the greatest apostles at the beginning of the early church. They spread the word throughout Asia Minor, Paul and Barnabas. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, G'day. <laughs> what do you reckon, Barnabas? Come, let us return and visit the brethren in every city. They didn't say let's hang out because they were being recorded for the Bible and you have to talk proper English. So they said, come, let us return and visit the brethren in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. All right, in modern speak, they went around the town saying, what's up, y'all? <laughs> Why do all YouTube things begin with what's up? <laughs> Must be American. And see how they are. And Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had abandoned them in Pamphylia and had not persisted and followed through with the work. Uh-oh, there's trouble brewing in paradise. And there arose a sharp contention between these two greatest men of God, apostles of the church. They had a Barney. They had a scrap. And they split up. Anyone know what I'm talking about? When the head partners of the company, or the two in the marriage, or the two on staff at church, or the two at work, had a difference of opinion. And so here we go. There arose a sharp contention, the Bible says. You know, conflict isn't wrong. Conflict is a natural, normal part of life. Do you know it's how you handle it that makes it right or wrong? There's always going to be conflict. One thinks this about that, and the other knows the truth. <laughs> 
I've, I've worked with couples that have split up because one of them was a Christian and one of them wasn't, and I've discovered that that was never the real reason why they split up. They split up for a lack of mutual respect. That's the real reason. A lack of mutual respect was the real issue. That's why division comes. It's not because I'm right and you're wrong, even though it's true. <laughs> I reassure my wife sometimes. I said, honey, you just need to be clear about one thing. I'm right and you're the other thing. <laughs> and she always has another opinion on that. I don't know why. Women are so contentious, aren't they? And there arose a sharp contention so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. The only one who sailed away to Cyprus with another woman or another man. And they sailed away to Cyprus. It's quite poignant, that term. They sailed away to Cyprus. Some of you have said goodbye to somebody near and dear to you because they sailed away to Cyprus. Did you trust the wrong person? Did they earn your trust? Could they hold your trust? And when they betrayed your trust, what did you do about it? Most people get very confused at that point. And Paul chose Silas and departed being commended by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. He did not go until he had been commended by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. That's telling, isn't it? Well, I thought it was. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Interesting, though, that the place where Barnabas went to, to Cyprus, they still speak about Barnabas as the father of their church and their faith. And the whole of Cyprus was evangelized. Yeah. And so God worked in all things for good, yeah. even conflict. And the result, instead of just having one church, they had two churches. Yeah. And then they had eight churches, and then they had 16, and then they had 32. So you see, God can work in conflict, providing they maintain respect. Providing they maintain respect. Just thought I'd share that with you. I've never taught that before, but I think it's worth noting, don't you? Now, would you come to your notes, please? And um, I've given you a copy of the chapter out of the school manual on trust and uh, the question of vulnerability. Trust and the question of vulnerability. To be or not to be. Anyone know the line? Shakespeare. To me, it's to trust or not to trust. To my mind, this is the quintessential question of life. Some of the most pain-filled lives I have ever worked with got there by not understanding trust. Some of the saddest people in my clinic some of the people who are so gutted because the person they trusted betrayed them completely. To trust means to entrust oneself, one's safety and one's future to the judgments and decisions of another.
which is itself the ability to predict how that person will respond and that one's confidence will not be betrayed. Trusting means making yourself vulnerable to another's thoughts and choices, sometimes extremely so and sometimes for life. I remember a story. Half of you are going to love this story and half of you are going to hate it. But I'm a farm boy. I come off the farm and on the farm, the boys did all the boy stuff on the farm. They drove everything, the tractors, the dozers, the loaders, the trucks. And the girls did housework and they did homemaking and they did home crafts. That was back in the 60s. You may not know anything about it. And one day, me and my mate, we took a plane trip and we climbed into the jet. We sat down and I got the shock of my life when the two pilots went into the cockpit and the one sitting in the captain's seat was a, was a, was a, you know, that one that's not a man. <laughs> and I said to my mate, I said, a girl just sat down in the pilot's seat. He said, no. I said, yeah. Should we be worried? He said, nah, mate, it'll be all right. He said, planes don't have any reverse, so they don't have to parallel park. It'll be fine. <laughs> he said, you're just going to have to trust the process. <laughs> All right, come on, forgive me, I was 17 years of age. It's compulsory to think like that when you're 17. All right, well, that's alienated half my audience. Let's see if we can offend the rest, shall we? Some trusting is therefore risky, and some not so much. The alternative to any trust is avoidance of any submission and loaning of power to another by attempting to maintain total control of our lives. Control freaks never learnt to trust. That's all. Now, there's two kinds of trust. There is trust whereby you trust one person to loan them money or to drive the car or to babysit, blah, blah, blah. There's another kind of trust, which is the loss of basic trust. And you educationalists will have heard of the educational theorist uh, Piaget, who reminded teachers that when a child's basic trust is violated before their school of age, they're going to give trouble and have trouble for the rest of their lives. Foundational loss of basic trust has repercussions throughout a person's life. And uh, when you look at the uh, borderline personality disorder, you always find a violation of early, early trust most commonly through divorce or abandonment of some sort. But not only. Any kind of serious traumatic abuse can violate basic trust in a child. But the real problem is in knowing how to tell whether or not a person or a group of people is worthy of trust, is worthy of submission, is worthy of the risk of being vulnerable. You who are married, when was the moment you decided that this boy, this girl was worthy of the trust of your heart? What did it take for you to decide that they were worthy of trust? I'm sure if I asked Catherine, what was the moment when you decided that Gideon was totally trustworthy? Well, she'd probably say the jury's still out, David, but... <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> And the truth is that the jury is still out because, you see, uh, trust is an ongoing issue. 
And as I say to pre-marriage couples and pre-marriage counselling, and I hope you did pre-marriage counselling, because if you did quality pre-marriage counselling, I will guarantee you a good marriage. It's as simple as that. Marriage was never meant to be a lucky dip. <laughs> but without quality pre-marriage counselling, your marriage is a lucky dip. Sorry about that. What's my point? Get pre-marriage counselling. I don't care how long you've been married. <laughs> <laughs> because somebody needs to check out your negotiation skills and your trust skills and your ability to comply skills. And if you're insecure, you will not be able to comply because all non-compliant people are basically insecure. And I'll tell you why. Because at some point in their early childhood, they decided that they could not trust their parents, that in fact for their survival their father or mother was quite willing to abandon the family and leave home and not be there when they needed them. And when a child decides that, part of them defensively disengages from that parent. And that parent then begins to lose the right to parent them and to speak into their lives. I can remember the day I decided that my father was not a safe father and that I would no longer allow him in, and I would put a wall up and a gate on it, and he could stay out. And I became a partial orphan at that point. My father died that day. And two years later, I decided the same thing about my mother. So at 12 years of age, I was now an emotional orphan. I trusted neither of them. And at that point, I propositioned them I said, send me off to boarding school. I'm over it here. I'm out of here at 12 years of age. And at 12 years of age, I became an orphan. And that was a premature case of premature individuation. Getting on your own two feet far too soon. That's a problem. That's a major cause of same-sex orientation. It's a major cause of homosexuality. And it's a major cause of peer parenting, where the gang become your parents. Your friends become your parents. Make sense? Your girlfriend becomes your pseudo-mother. Your boyfriend becomes your pseudo-father as you keep trying to fill the dad gap or the mother gap with another child just like you. That's a problem. I think I've got their attention, Gideon. And I'm learning something too. It's great, isn't it? So the failure to form basic trust in childhood results in the twin conditions of insecurity and control. To the degree that you're insecure, you have to control. And if somebody marries you, they're in for a difficult time. Just let that sink in for a minute. Are you that person who needs to control before you feel safe? Your spouse is having a difficult time of it. And so are your teenagers. And is usually the result of a combination of A, early betrayal or trauma, and B, a lack of parental instruction on how to know who is worthy of trust and who is not. Did your mother teach you girls which guys to trust and which guys not to trust? Not if she didn't know. Did your father teach you which guys to trust and which guys not to trust? If he didn't do that, then he left you abandoned because 
you didn't know who to trust and who not to trust. You only thought you did. And so, mothers, please teach your sons how to know a girl from a gold digger, how to know a girl from an opportunist. Please teach your daughters how to know a bloke from someone who's just out to get whatever he can. He'll use you. You see, when you feel like you're drowning throughout your life, who are you thinking about? When you've got a toothache, who are you thinking about? I suspect somebody here knows the answer to that question. Yourself. When, oh, there's the answer. To the degree that you're in pain is the degree that you cannot love because when you're drowning, you are not thinking about the well-being of the lifeguard trying to help you survive. To the degree that you're in pain is the degree to which you are narcissistic. A self-involved person is self-involved because they're frightened and they're insecure and they're drowning in slow motion. And narcissistic people cannot sustain relationships. They end up in the divorce courts. This often results in some form of childhood vow, never to trust anybody. My survival is now all up to me. The walls go up, the gates go on, the armour comes on, and there you are, hiding behind your armour for the rest of your life. But here's the problem. How are you going to bond and achieve intimacy and vulnerability with your spouse with a suit of armour on that you'll never take off? You want to make love? You can, but it's a noisy, clanky business <laughs> when two people will not take their armour off. It's like going to bed with your steel cap boots on, isn't it? Just thought I'd invoke your imagination for a second. Not for too long, you obviously can't handle it. I shouldn't have said that. Now I can't remember where I was. <laughs> This in turn results in walls of emotional defense. Now you know why I'm reading it. I could lose my place. This results in walls of emotional defensiveness, which may remain for the entire duration of one's natural life, causing anxiety. It's a shame to go into old folks' homes and see old people who are still hiding behind their walls of defensiveness. Walls of silence, walls of sarcasm. Walls of irritation and grumpiness. Walls of taking things too personally. Walls of taking offence where none was intended. It's such a pity they've spent their whole life behind those walls. Causing anxiety, alienation and failure to some degree in all of one's relationships. And I want to talk to you about another kind of trust that I call naive trust. Nothing hurts like a fool's trust. And some of you were naive as you set out in life. And your favourite saying is, if only I knew then what I know now. My grandmother used to say that. So I wonder, I said to her, I thought I'd hit her off at the pass. I said, Nan, what do you know now that you didn't know then? <laughs> she couldn't answer me. <laughs> On the other hand, to be naive is to distrust oneself to those who are not worthy of it, which is to invite disappointment pain and depending on how much is trusted, possible disaster. This may be known as stupid trusting. It's a highly technical term. You may not have heard it before. <laughs> you see, when I'm working with uh, 
middle-aged uh, solos, uh, singles, and people who are still hoping for a happy marriage and finding that great companion, you often find that they're very scared to trust again because the last trust ended up in such rejection and such pain and such abandonment. They're just too frightened to ever trust again. And to them, trust is very dangerous. And my gospel to them is that it's not trust that's dangerous. It's dumb trust that's dangerous. How many know it's far easier to employ an employee than to get rid of them when they turn into a massive liability? That's dumb trust. The church I started in Dunedin, I took on a co-pastor and I made the mistake of prematurely um, ordaining him and he wrecked the church within the first two years and I had to start again, sadder and wiser. Employers, you can build a wonderful little family business and then you hire a crazy maker and watch the whole thing turn to custard. Just because they're family doesn't mean they're trustworthy. Can you get your head around that? And even the church has its share of predators and crazy makers. Don't be naive. Calling them a Christian doesn't mean that you don't need to carefully negotiate any deal you do with them. Don't leave your brains on the shelf or try to be transformed by the removal of your mind. <laughs> I stole that one from Ray Comfort. <laughs> credit where credit's due. Dishonor where dishonor's due. That's what I say. We have in this manner... I, I can't think of a proverb without twisting it for some reason. My wife says I have a twisted spirit. I, I rebuke that. We have in this manner almost summarized the human condition. Did you notice? For children, naive trust comes naturally. And it's also, it's also, it's, it's becoming disillusioned or cynical about the church in general is the foolish response of those who simply don't want to grow up in their understanding of trust. I say it again, when you understand the dynamics of trust, you will stay out of the land of disillusionment. So it's a fundamental and vital skill in emotional relational health to know two things. A, how to trust, how to know who to trust, who is worthy of trust and who isn't? Well, thank you, bro. All right, the rest of the sermon is for you exclusively. All right? The rest of them can just um, go to another place in their minds, but you I teach. All right, examine their track record. Everyone leaves their own wake. Any boat builder or master boat builder can tell you about the hull of a boat just by looking at the wake, how efficient it is at the speed it's going. And I can look at the wing of an aeroplane and if I can see the wing and the propeller, I know everything I need to know about that plane's performance. It tells me everything. And so um, as, you, as you understand every person is like a boat, they leave a wake. This is their reputation. Please, guys, if you own a block of flats or a house to rent, do your due diligence. Many a landlord has rued the day they ever let their own house out or their flats out because they didn't do their due diligence. Don't be lazy when it comes to buying or leasing. 
do your due diligence and don't cut corners. Yeah? Trust in haste, repent at leisure, and pay the lawyer's fees to get out of it. Is this like too close to home? <laughs> Let's talk about Jesus, shall we? <laughs> Jesus is very interested in the scrapes that you get yourself into because in the furnace of those fires, your character is being formed. What is their record on previous relationships with girls, with guys? with property, with cars and driving, and with business. The future will not be different to the past if there has been no repentance. I love the word repentance. You know why? It promises me that my future will be better than the past. I love the word repentance. Without repentance, your future is only going to be a repetition of the past. Is that what you want? It was a rhetorical question, but you can answer it if you like. And if this is so, there must yet be a period of time when such changes are proved. It's called probation. And I have put many a wife and many a husband on probation in order to restore the marriage. But how they react to being put on probation is very telling. I can just about guarantee that if they react very badly to being put on probation, healing and restoration is not in their future. Is that interesting? You know, men and women destroy marriages for different reasons. Men destroy marriages by doing something stupid. If they had a sit down and just had a little bit of thinking time, in their little think, think chair, they would never have done whatever it is they did. But they didn't think about it, they just did it. Women, on the other hand, destroy marriages by refusing to believe that their perceptions could be lying to them. Their feelings, their pe- if that's how I feel about it, that's how it is. If that's how I perceive you, that's how you are. If that's what I think you meant, then that's what you meant. And don't complicate it by trying to explain to me that's not what you meant. My feelings would not lie to me. My feelings would never lie to me as a king lie. Your feelings lie to you on a daily basis. And you have to practice siding with the truth against your feelings to get back on track. And that's why we need therapists, because therapists and counsellors are the guides to help you side with the truth while your feelings figure it out and come to heal. You can tell your puppy and your dog to come to heal. Why can't you tell your emotions that are rooted and grounded in past trauma to come to heal as well? Karen, do you agree with that? I hope so. Because if Karen doesn't agree, it might be wrong. You know, getting disorientated means you must get through a process called limbic lag while your feelings are telling you you're on the wrong side of the road, you better tell your feelings to sit down and shut up because you're in America now and you've got to stay on the wrong side of the road to survive. <laughs> That's called limbic lag. And that is the major challenge for any person to get through when they've been through a time of psychiatric trauma or 
um, emergency, you've got to get through the limbic lag. Remember, forgiveness merely clears the way for trust to be earned via better choices, proved when under pressure and exposure to temptation, without reversion to old patterns. We need probation because anyone can say they've changed and anyone can change for a week. But probation means they have to stay changed when they're under pressure. And they don't revert. And that's why... In the process of restoring trust, they have to get through those times of pressure and duress without reaching for the old quick fix. The pornography, the alcohol, the gambling, the lying, the uh, exaggeration, etc. Number two, do they leak? Can they keep a confidence or is there no sense of discretion in their speech? You're not ready to counsel or be a counsellor if you can't keep a confidence. I know far more about people than I ever let on. That's my job. And sometimes when somebody comes up in conversation and people are all sharing their bias and their ignorance about this person, I have to keep my mouth shut because I know none of it's true and I can't afford to say a thing. And some of you are not capable of that. You leak. One person said, I can keep a secret, but the people I tell are hopeless at it. (laughs) New Zealand is a small place, and her churches are even smaller. Think twice before you blab. Number three, what kind of people do they relate to? You can tell a lot about a person by the people they relate to. I know that the ladies my wife relates to, they already have too many shoes in their cupboard, in their wardrobe. (laughs) Is that presumptuous? Birds of a feather still flock together. And she knows the mates that I've got own too many cars, just to be fair. And a man may still be known by the kind of company he keeps. You may be known by the kind of men you keep company with. And I say to young girls and to those that are dating, I say, look at the kind of guys that your mate, your new boyfriend, is very comfortable with. Because birds of a feather flock together. And a bad company always corrupts good morals. And I've written here, and a woman may be known by the kind of company that she keeps at a distance. I'll let you figure that one out. You can lie awake tonight pondering what I meant by that. Number four, are they willing to be transparent or do they resent any questioning? I watch closely when I challenge and question and hold a client to account to see if they're used to it or if they buck and duck and dive and get angry and frustrated because they're being called to account. Some people are comfortable with being transparent and some people hate it. What's that about? That is to say, how do they react to being held accountable for their actions? This is most revealing. A proud heart resents questions and is not to be trusted at all. I trust transparent people. I don't trust cockroaches who hide in the darkness. I want my wife to be a moth. I want her to come out into the light. I don't want her to hide in the dark like a cockroach. And guess what? It cuts both ways. When she says to me, how much did that cost? She doesn't want to hear, "Mm, dollars. (laughs) 
She wants to know what I paid for it. The real price. I'm just terrified by the idea that if I go on holiday or go away, she's going to sell everything that I've got for the price I told her I got it for. <laughs> the guys aren't laughing. What's that about? If in doubt, ask the necessary questions and observe carefully what reaction you get. Being questioned is not the same as being distrusted. Please understand that being questioned is not the same as being distrusted. If your unbearable feeling is to be distrusted, and there's a bunch of you here that are thoroughly bruised in this area, you can't stand to feel distrusted, and you duck and dive and you take offense whenever your spouse or even your children question your motives or question what you're doing. You hate it. Be careful that you're not actually a cockroach hiding in the darkness. This is very real to me because Nelson is having a plague of cockroaches at the moment. So excuse me if you don't know what they are. Number five, they are forgiving or do they hold a grudge against any who dare oppose them, who dare stand up to them or who wrong them? Sooner or later, when you call them out on a fault, they're going to treat you in the same way. And not every person in the congregation is trusted by the pastor because he knows that everything's fine until he has, to, he has to correct them. And then he may get a thank you, pastor, or he may get a quick kick in the guts, depending. And so I wait and I test because I only trust my friends. I don't trust everybody. And it says of Jesus that he would not even sleep inside Jerusalem because he knew what was in the hearts of people. He used to go out to the valley of uh, the Mount of Olives and sleep out there. He did not entrust himself to people. Number six, look carefully at how they treat their family, their parents, their spouse, their children, whose interests are constantly being put first is the most deciding question. Narcissists have one agenda, their own survival. And as a result consideration and empathy cannot develop within them. They do not have basic love because empathy has never developed. They're in arrested development as a result of that trauma that meant that their survival became entirely up to them. Number seven, how do they view their stewardship as employees? What is their attitude to their employers? You know, when a woman is looking at a man as um, husband material, she knows that if he has a sense of entitlement or he's disgruntled with his employer, she knows his security of employment is transient. And she knows that if there's a downtime, it may be her husband that's first to be let go. Or she'll know that he's going to quit and take off because of his disgruntlement or because of a sense of entitlement and she's not at all sure that he's going to be able to provide for her uh, when she's pregnant and she's unable to work and support herself. She wants to know this man is well employed and that he's got a good attitude towards his employer because every woman knows that if he doesn't have a good attitude to his employer, he, she cannot trust his uh, job security. And no employer wants to employ somebody and so if downtimes comes, who's going to be the first one to be let go? 
Number eight, are they blame shifters, minimizing their culpability, or do they accept responsibility for themselves and their mistakes? Some people cannot say, my bad, I stuffed up, didn't I? They can't do that. They remind me of a tractor we had on the farm whose reverse had broken. It would only go forward. <laughs> and I got on it as an eight-year-old boy and didn't know it had no reverse. And when I put it away in the shed, I couldn't get it to go in reverse. And every time I tried, it went a bit further forward. It contacted the back wall, but it was a very powerful tractor. I'll let your imagination do the rest. <laughs> Suffice to say that when Dad got home, there was a big sheet of polythene over the back wall <laughs> while we fixed it and repaired the hole the same shape as a tractor. Some memories you don't really want to dwell on. Let's move on. <laughs> Thank you. What do they do with emotional pain? Run from it or face up to it? and try to bring it to resolution. Addicts of any sort always run. Addicts always run. That's why they're addicts. They run. They've never found their unbearable feeling, and their unbearable feeling continues to stalk them and haunt them, and they'll keep falling over, alcohol, pornography, marijuana, whatever, until somebody realizes that the addiction is the symptom, not the cause. You must get to the unbearable feeling that's stalking them. Because every time it shows its ugly head, they're going to go straight back to their security device, their quick fix, their false comforter. You can spend hundreds of hours helping somebody quit their addiction to their false comforter, only to discover that when they finally get free of it, they replace it with something else. Why? Because you still haven't dealt with the angst, the dread, the sense of abandonment, the boredom, the loneliness that they are so terrified of. Get to a professional, get to a living wisdom counsellor or a sozo counsellor and find the real source of the pain. Number 11, who was it who introduced them as, uh, oh, your gut reaction, number 10, do you get a bad feeling about this person or does your spouse or your parents? Oftentimes, Rosemary's had a bad feeling about uh, a person that I'm thinking of employing or doing business with. And although it's not totally reliable, maybe he reminds her of someone she didn't like, I always take notice of it. If she's got a bad feeling about someone or something or something we're planning, I always make sure she feels heard. Why? Because when I ignore her caution, I usually regret it. Woman's intuition, nonsensical, irrational, illogical, and almost totally reliable. Hate that. <laughs> you can see I've learned a thing or two, can't you? I'm still learning. Okay, number 11, who introduced them as reliable? In an introduction, the person introducing me passes their status and their mana to me. And that's why doctors are careful about who they would recommend as a counsellor. Because as a professional, they can be held liable if the counsellor stuffs up your life. Did you know that? That's by law. When a professional accountant introduces you to an investment analysis and you lose your investment, you can sometimes hold the accountant liable. And that's why from the pulpit, I'm very, very careful who I would ever recommend by name because if you go to them you can, and they screw up your life, I can be liable. 
And when Gideon recommended me this morning, he passed his mana, his status, such as he has to me. Because on the basis of your trust in him, you then trust me. By the lunchtime, some of you have made decided that was misplaced trust, but hey, that's your call to make. I've been around now for 30 years. It took 10 years to earn the population's trust in Nelson. It took 20 years to earn the bishop's trust. It took 30 years to earn all of the local pastor's trust. But now I'm the go-to man for those people such that I have a long queue of people. They trusted slowly, and so they should. Number 11, who was it who introduced them as reliable? Number 12, take, trust takes time to build. Can you afford to be, trust, to, to be honest with somebody? You know, um, children have already predicted your response before ever they take the risk of being honest with you. They will not be honest with you if they always predict that they will come away feeling unheard or you've had a go at them. And wives always predict their husband's response before they risk honesty with him. And husbands always predict the wife's response before they'll risk honesty. And if they risk some honesty and she blows up and can't handle it and gets angry and, and gets hot and bothered, he thinks, nope, not ready yet. I'll check, I'll check her out again in another five years. You get the idea? You see, we do not attempt those courageous conversations if we cannot trust that we will come away feeling heard. And if you want to save a marriage or relationship, even with your employer, with your employee, can I suggest that you start by making sure that they feel heard when they have to bring up a tough subject with you. Before you put your survival kit on and your helmet on and start cutting and slashing with your sword, leave your sword in its scabbard and just make them feel heard before you do anything else. People uh, can be honest with me because before I reach for my own reaction, I make sure that I'm really on board what their concern is and why. And if I will take the time to do that, they quickly find they can tell me anything. And then we can get to the real issue. Sometimes young couples, engaged couples uh, in pre-marriage counselling will not trust me with what's really going on in their hearts. And then I can't help them later on. And sometimes when they fall apart, I inquire carefully and discover that they withheld from me what was really going on. And so I'm hoping here that you can uh, make your own children feel heard when they're frightened of you or powerless or feeling like they've got it, they've stuffed up. Make sure that they feel heard. And remember in your couple and your married life that the intimacy, the intimacy can never be better than the honesty. The day you stop being honest because you've predicted his or her reaction is the day trust begins to die. It's the day that the wedge begins to form. How blessed is the presence of God amongst them who dwell in unity. 
But the first thing I have to do with a difficult marriage situation is find out whether or not the intimacy has suffered because the honesty stopped. And sometimes I've got to say to my wife, you know, let's just have a, a uh, touch base time. Is there anything you've been wanting to tell me that I've been too busy to hear? Is there anything you've been wanting to tell me that you're scared to bring up with me? Is there anything that uh, you need me to hear to maintain the intimacy and trust between us? And I see straight away, she asks in her own mind, is this a safe topic? This is a courageous conversation we're about to have, but is it safe? And that's how you maintain love, people. That's how you maintain unity and accord. And whatever this whole church is going through, my first hope is that you can make each other feel heard. Because respect does no damage to a relationship. But your deaf ears will destroy hope. And when a husband puts his deaf ears on to his wife, when a wife puts her deaf ears on to her husband, when they both put them on to their children, there's issues developing in that family already. Leave your deaf ears behind and learn how to listen without justifying yourself, without condemning them, or without reaching for your sword. And trust will grow. We trust those who make us feel heard. We don't trust those who don't make us feel heard. I'm an evangelist, but I'm an evangelist who expresses my ministry through counseling. And I'll tell you why. I find that I can be a far more effective evangelist as a counselor because as a counselor, I take the time to listen to their life situation first. I want to know what the gospel is for this person, and I cannot know that until I've heard the pain and the trouble that they're going through. Sometimes as evangelists, we start preaching before we've done any listening. And we're answering questions they don't have, and we're answering issues that they're not bothered about because we're not listening. Be an advocate evangelist. Find the advocate that God has placed in their lives. Listen for that and then touch it. You Can Witness with Confidence by Rosalind Rinker is a great little book to read to help you with that skill. Listen first and then you will know what is the gospel for this person. And you know, I've shared the gospel with thousands of clients over the years. I think I've clocked up over 60,000 hours in clinical hours in counseling, and I have never expressed the gospel in exactly the same way to two people yet. That's the power of listening. And if they feel heard, then they are in a position to receive whatever I've got to give them. You like that? I'll leave that with you, please. Uh, because if you can develop your trust skills, you'll never end up stranded and isolated in the land of disillusionment. That would be good, wouldn't it? Thank you for your time and your ears and your help. And uh, I'll give it back to your pastor. God love you, Tez. Thank you so much. Thank you.